in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So God willing, today we're going to um, start with uh, Exodus chapter 18. Last time we spoke about chapter 16 and 17. Uh, does anyone remember some of the main points that we discussed or the main events that happened uh, last time? Blank faces. So what are the what are the two main kind of bodily needs of the Israelites? Food and water, right? And so that was the thing that they needed, and that's the thing that God provided. And we spoke about how God sent the manna from heaven and also that he gave them water um, coming out of the rock after Moses um, struck the rock. So those were uh, the two main things. And, and one of the characteristics of the Israelites that we keep you know, revisiting and coming back to again and again is the idea that they were very stubborn, they were not very faithful, and we spoke about the difference between supplicating God and complaining and grumbling against God. Like, it's one thing to have a need and to go to God and ask him to fulfill the need in faith, and uh, but what the people were doing is they had a need, but instead of coming to God with faith, they would come with grumbling and complaining and, 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 and really cursing their life um, for the situation that they were in. Um, which is a which is a type of blasphemy against God. So, um, God willing, today we're going to continue studying, um, uh, starting from chapter 18, um, where we're going to see how the the load and the burden that is on Moses from being the leader of so many people starts to take its toll on him. <coughs> In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So it says, and Jethro, the priest of Midian. Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Okay, so who is Jethro? When did we hear about him before? When Moses, when Moses left Egypt, he did what? He married Zipporah, and Zipporah's father is Jethro. Okay, and, and, and we read about him that he was a priest of Midian, um, so, you know, Jethro was not an Israelite, right? And Zipporah was not an Israelite, okay? Um, they, they were Midianites, okay? Um, which, indi which indirectly, they came from Ishmael, okay? Ishmael, the son of Abraham and Hagar. Ishmael, the Midianites came through them. And actually, in some places in the scripture, the Midianites and the Ishmaelites kind of like that name, that label kind of is interchangeable. We, we, we read about them that they're Ishmaelites, read about them they're Midianites. Um, and so Jethro here, he is not, um, you know, he is, he's not following the, 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 the Hebrew faith to the letter as, as, um, as Moses is and as Aaron is, right? He, he's not from that background. He doesn't have that faith as a background. But here we read that he being in the land of Midian, Right. He being, you know, where he was from before, we don't know exactly. It doesn't say exactly where he came from, but they were already outside of Egypt. They're already living like in the wilderness. OK. And so here um, he hearing that Moses and all of the Israelites had left Egypt. Right. He, he came out to meet them, um, including also with Moses' wife, Zipporah. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in the foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. 
And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. So um, now the, the Israelites are at the, at the base of the mountain of God. Okay, And this is we're going to read about how Moses is going to go up the mountain for receiving the Ten Commandments. And now he has been joined by his wife and his children. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, I'm coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. So Moses is always like the, the kind of the, the focus of his conversation, even as he is describing his life experience and everything that he went through. He's always like bringing it into focus by speaking about what is it that the Lord had done. You know, and I think this is important for us when we are even recalling our life is to try to recall and to remember the important events of our life through the lens of what is it that the Lord has done. And even when we, um, when we speak about our life experiences or, you know, our past or things that has happened to us, we speak about it to others again from that same lens of what is it that the Lord had done. If we really see our lives as having purpose, as having like some goal and target, and that God is actually with us, then we will see everything through this lens. We will see everything with the, with the lens of what is it that God is doing in my life now? You know, maybe I, I'm not achieving yet the goals I would like to achieve. Maybe I'm waiting for something to happen that hasn't happened yet. Yet even in this period of waiting and this time, I am seeing what is it that the Lord is doing and what is it that the Lord has done. Now, maybe what is it the Lord has done is not come into full clarity. We don't yet know exactly or how to interpret or understand everything that is happening now. But certainly, God willing, that maybe later on in our life, when we look back at whatever period of time that we happen to be in now, we will get that clarity and we'll get that understanding and we'll see how God was preparing us for something, right? Especially during these times of difficulty, this experience that Moses uh, experienced and that all the people experienced in Egypt. You know, as we spoke about before, how Moses um, transformed and changed throughout his life, and we saw how he was when he was a young man, and how he changed when he got older, and how he changed when he saw all the plagues, and how he saw the faithfulness of God, and how this process of change happened. You know, in order for Moses to be the man that he is now at this point, in the history of Israel, in order for him to truly be able to be a prophet and a leader and to have mercy on the people, to intercede for them, to be able to lead them, to be obedient, to be humble, all the things that we see in the character of Moses, he could not have been this unless he had gone through everything that came before, right? So Moses here, able to look back at what came before, right? And he's telling his father-in-law all that the Lord had done, right? It wasn't, he didn't attribute to himself he didn't say, I was so good and clever and I led the people. And he also didn't see that it was random. It wasn't just random things. And he didn't look at it as being something that it was a tragedy, right? It's like he wasn't speaking about it in terms of complaining. Can you believe about all these bad and horrible things that have happened to me in my life? Let me, let me list for you a list of complaints of things that I have about my life. One, two, three, four, five, right? He wasn't speaking to it about it in that sense, with that, with that thinking, with that mentality. He wasn't complaining about his life, but he was saying, look at all the things the Lord had done. 
The Lord allowed us to pass through the sea. The Lord allowed me to experience this and this. Like, like yes, there are a lot of experiences that Moses has had that were negative experiences, that were painful experiences, that were, you know, not experience that one someone would desire to have. And yet, when Moses looked back at all, he sees the Lord working in it. Compare that to the Israelites, right? The Israelites were the opposite. Even though how clear it was that God is working with them, feeding them, bringing them water, bringing them quail, bringing them, you know, freedom from Pharaoh, doing the miracles and the plagues and passing through the Red Sea and all the uh, clear and obvious things that God was doing with them. And yet when they recount their lives, when they look back at the same set of events that Moses also experienced, they don't speak about it in terms of, let me tell you about what the Lord has done for us. No, they, they speak about it in terms of complaints. And it would have been better, God, for you to have killed us in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here? They don't see anything positive from what is it that they've experienced, but they only see negative, 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 negative. And that's one of the big differences between Moses and the Israelites. Because to a large extent, they both started in a, in a similar place. And yet Moses, having gone through these experiences, grew quickly and learned like to have faith in God and to trust in him to where he became who he is now. Whereas sadly, the majority of the Israelites remain stuck in that place of complaining and lack of faith as they had at the beginning. So it's important for us to take this as an example, to search through our past, you know, to look through it and find how is it that God has been preparing me for for different things. How is it that God has prepared me for this moment? What has God been able to produce in me through difficult uh, circumstances and through painful ones? And maybe even my own personal mistakes. I mean, we know that Moses made mistakes. You know, actually, Moses fleeing from Egypt um, when he was 40 years old, thinking that it was his time now to redeem the people and to, to free them, this was a mistake. And yet God weaved, you know, er all the events that happened in his life to still bring about the, the desired goal and outcome that God wanted in his own way and his own timing, despite even the mistake that Moses made. And so even though Moses made a mistake, here he is now kind of victorious in the sense that that mistake was not an end for him. That mistake, actually, God used it to help him overcome what he lacked in order for him to continue to grow into this role that he has now, which is the leader um, of Israel. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. Right. Again, w one way we can tell, like, if I have this spirit of positivity of looking at my life is when I, re when I recount the events of my life, is the person who I'm speaking to going to rejoice because of the things that God has done in my life? Or is the person going to be like, depressed because of all the things that we keep telling them and complaining about that's happened to me in my life. And it sounds maybe like sometimes we think it's like, well, that's my lot. You know, like I had to go through or I did experience so many negative things. And so my life is full of sorrow and sadness and depression. And so when I tell anyone about my life, that's what it is. It's full of sorrow and sadness and depression. So, of course, when I tell that to someone, they're also going to feel sorry for me and they're going to feel sad and they're going to be depressed. Right. But but we know that Moses' life was not, you know, filled with nothing but joyful things. We know he experienced suffering, right? And yet his attitude toward what he saw, his attitude toward 
that God was working in his life despite the negative feelings that he had at various points made that when Jethro hears the story, the life story of Moses, you know, that, that it's, it's a joyful story, right? Yes, it might have dark times and it might have pain and it might have, you know, periods of time where we wish we didn't have to experience. But what is the overall theme of life? It's joyful because the Lord is working. The Lord is with us and that ultimately we have victory. We have victory in God that God is with us, even if we do not achieve the goals we want to have on the earth, even if we experience suffering after suffering. And yet, even if it's just the way that I kind of have an internalized peace about life, you know, uh, one of my, I think I might have mentioned him before, like one of my coworkers that I, I, I had before I became a priest, he, um, I still see him occasionally. He, he had so many difficult challenges in his life, but he always had the best attitude. And he actually made you feel consoled about whatever small trifling problem you had because you see him having these very, very big problems and so many of them and seemingly un- endless ones that kind of come upon him all the time. And yet he always had a good attitude and he was always thankful. He was a Christian. He is Christian. And, and so... He, 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 the way that he framed his life is what made the difference between him being depressed versus him being happy. It wasn't the events of his life. It wasn't because certain things happened to him that means that he must be sad. No, he, he saw the work of God in everything. And so even though when even you hear the things that are happening to him, it kind of makes you cringe and, and imagine to yourself, like, if I experienced this, how would I respond? How would I feel? And it would be so difficult. And yet you see him joyful right? It doesn't mean that it's not difficult. It doesn't mean that's not a challenge or that he doesn't feel sad about things that are happening to him. But in the end, his joy is coming from God and the fact that he knows that God is with him, right? So it's our, our kind of mind state, our, 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 you know, our, our dispensation, our, our, our attitude toward life is not about what happens to me. It's about how I turn to God in all of these things, and that, that I experience the grace, the peace, and the love of God inside of myself so that I can successfully um, conquer and successfully endure and, and come out victorious and all these things. Like we spoke about this at length when we spoke about Joseph when we were studying the book of Genesis and how even though he experienced so much suffering um, and so many negative things and, and, you know, being rejected by his brothers and being, you know, falsely accused, living as a slave and then as a prisoner, that all throughout this time, he came out of it successfully. You know, we speak so much about in our society about mental illness, you know, and a lot of times we speak about mental illness with the idea of how do we treat mental illness, okay? But somebody like Joseph you know, that a typical person having experienced what it is he experienced would be mentally ill to the max, right? And yet he was spared that because he saw the work of God in every step of his life along the way. He didn't feel like he was alone and isolated and victimized. Instead, he saw God is allowing this. I don't understand why. God is allowing it. I'm not alone. God is allowing me to be sold as a slave. I'm not alone. I, I see God before me all the time. God is present with me. I'm not, I'm not uh, alone and abandoned because even though my brothers abandoned me and yet I am not abandoned by God and so I do not feel isolated and alone. So this kind of protects him from falling into that state of despair and mental illness and all of these things. 
So, so here, the way that we see life, the way that we interpret the actions, the things that are happening around us, plays a huge part in our mental health and how in our joy that we have in, in our life. Yes. Go ahead. So coming to terms with the idea of why is it that God has maybe in another person's life allowed them to experience such good things and happy family and prosperous life and good future, whereas another person had nothing but sorrow um, and, and suffering, right? That's what you're saying. Um, th that's a good question. And in the end, we might never know the answer while we're here on earth. Why is it that God allows in some people such pain and such suffering? We do know that in many cases that God does reveal to us of different you know, figures and characters in the scripture, that the point of it was to glorify himself and to make himself known. When you have a person who has been given everything and they're happy and they have everything, right? You look at them and say, that's good, okay? But when you look at a person who has, has experienced such suffering and yet they are joyful and, 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 and thanking thankful to God, uh, you know, in that way, that glorifies God. Like, which one is going to make you think more about the goodness of God? It's not the person who has everything. It's the person who doesn't have anything and yet still are glorifying God. Like the story of Job, for instance, right? The benefit of the story of Job and why is it that God even allowed all these catastrophes to come upon Job is to make himself known and to, to, to illustrate to us how faithful Job was. Job's joy and, and confidence and and peace and prosperity wasn't because of his physical material things that he had or his health or his family. It was because of his faith in God. And so when everything was stripped away, he still had his faith in God. And even though he was so sad and, and depressed, but he never cursed God and he never saw that God was unfair to him, but he accepted. And, you know, there's a famous verse when he's speaking to his wife when he says, shall we accept good from God and not evil? Like God has given and God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like, so... We learn something, right, from someone who is maybe experiencing difficulty in his life. We learn of the, the strength of faith that we should have. So God has purpose, you know, like also in the story of the man born blind. When the apostles are asking Christ, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And the Lord said, what? Well, it was not him or his parents who sinned, but that the glory of God should be manifested in him, Right. So the man was born blind simply so that God can be glorified in him, right? So one important thing for us in asking this question is, you know, why, why do good people suffer and why is there suffering in the world? The answer is not about, it's not about me. Like, it's not just about me. It's not just what have I done and why do I deserve, right? We are a part of a whole. And if God chooses to use me to, to benefit the whole, to benefit those who hear about me, who see my story, who see my faith, then that is, his, that is his business, right? He is the one who decides what I have been chosen for. This is my purpose, right? Maybe my purpose is to suffer, right? And instead of trying to escape that and maybe coming to terms with it, saying, God has allowed this disease. God has allowed this situation. God has allowed it, and he wants me to strive to deal with it in the best possible way, right? 
And so instead of asking the question of what did I do to deserve this, I, maybe I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's not about a punishment. God is not send, it's not punishing me by allowing me to experience these dark periods of time. But there are many, many reasons, whether to teach me something, to glorify himself. So there are a lot of reasons. Um, that's not to say that those people who are prosperous and, you know, that God is like, abandon them or not caring about them obviously he does but maybe their purpose is different maybe they glorify him through their generosity maybe they glorify god through through what they're able to accomplish because the things that in their life has kind of lined up in such a way to give them such opportunities to be able to to do good in the world that maybe if they had lived a life of difficulty they would not have had that opportunity right so in the end god knows right god is the one who plans for each person's life and why they experience what they do and what what he has in store for them but whether we receive from god prosperity and 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 good things in the world or whether we receive dark things and and difficult times god is to be glorified and has a purpose in in both of them Sometimes we have the capacity already, by the grace of God, to bear those burdens, um, right? We, we uh, I, I think that we go to God with most of our burdens, um, but sometimes we don't know what to deal, uh, what to do with them, how how to deal with them. Precisely, we haven't learned how to. Um, I think everybody has an inclination, or at least, okay, I, I'll say, in, in my past, uh, I would go to a number of individuals. Um, seeking advice, seeking guidance, and the such. Um, but over time, I've obviously learned uh, that that doesn't work. You'll find a variety of opinions when you do that. Um, and and uh, until recently, I, I've come to feel that I it's, it's preferable or better to simply and solely go to my father confessor, my spiritual father. Uh, is that sufficient, or are there times where it is appropriate to uh, cast her burdens on somebody else. There's nothing wrong with seeking advice from several people, but you have to just be wise of who you choose and that the advice that you receive is going to be godly advice based on the scriptural, like in the words of God, rather than the, 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 the you know, the philosophies of the society for that modern day, you know, like... Uh, um, the God uses different ways to teach us, right? Sometimes he teaches us with words, maybe words coming from my father confession to me. Sometimes he teaches us through the circumstances that we experience in life. He, he teaches us through difficult trials. Sometimes he teaches us, you know, with, you know, things that people say to me that they're not even aware of my situation. And they just say something that kind of, you know, triggers in my mind like, okay, this is like a message like God is sending to me. So the way that God seeks to teach us and, and teaches us is there are many, many different ways. So it's not the case that the only way that I learn is by going to one person and saying, here are my problems, give me advice, right? The greatest experience or the greatest teacher is just life itself, right? The experience that we have in life itself. Because as anyone knows who's like studied a subject in school, you know, you open up the textbook and you read the textbook about everything that it has in there and you see, okay, I have a sense, an idea of it. But when you actually go and you try to apply that into the real world, it's not exactly the way you thought. 
it's not exactly what you imagined it to be. Because when you're in the real world, there's all these other factors that you have to consider, right? You know, like like a simple thing, like when you read about in, in, about like faithfulness and being faithful even to the point of like being martyred. You read about martyrs, you read about the apostles, how they persecute, were persecuted, and you think, yeah, okay, as Christians, that we're, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be faithful, and even if we're martyred, we're gonna be we're gonna be faithful, right? When you read it in a book, it kind of sounds simple, but when you try to apply that in real life, it's very complicated and and how do i re respond in this situation versus that situation and overcoming my own personal weakness and so on so the best way for me to learn is to live and to live seeking the the will of god in my life and he will kind of show me what is lacking in me oftentimes we don't know what's lacking so whether my father confession is coming and telling me what i should do or or or, or, or another person or some circumstance, or whatever the case might be, God is constantly working on us all the time to to because He knows our weakness. He knows what is actually lacking, even when we ourselves don't see it. So um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, sort of. Okay. <laughs> um, did we read this verse yet? No. Okay. Uh, and Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very beginning in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. So remember, Jethro is not a Hebrew. So he didn't just believe in one God. He believed in many gods. Okay, And the way that Moses... Uh, recounted the story and elevating the work of God in it and making it clear that God was the one doing good and work working in it made Jethro right believe that that his God is greater than all the gods and as we see many times in scripture like for instance with the prophet Daniel um, or others whenever some you know prophet or, or, or you know is very faithful he can make the other people around him believe right maybe they don't reject the idea of um, uh, of, of the existence of other gods, but they believe that God is the greatest of them, okay? And so here, Jethro is, like his faith is growing and in just observing Moses and hearing from Moses. The way that we speak about ourselves, like speaking about evangelism, the way that we speak about ourselves and our life plays a huge part in bringing people to the faith. If I am sad and depressed about myself and my life all the time, that's not an encouraging message so that I can then tell other people, hey, come and believe what I believe, you know, because I'm so sad and depressed. I want you to be sad and depressed like me. Like, like that's not a that's not a good like you don't you don't lead with that. Right. But if you are like a joyful person, then naturally, even without you having to say anything, people are going to know how come you're so joyful all the time. Like, why? Why are you so joyful? And it gives us the opportunity to, to explain and to say why I'm joyful. The, the, our faith should, is not just a set of beliefs or pieces of information that we keep in our brain and says, yes, I believe this and I don't believe this and I believe this is right and I believe this is wrong. Our faith is the life that we live, right? It's a, it, it, it affects the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves. And if I see the world as, as one where ultimately God is conquering and will conquer and will have victory, and that we are going to live eternally with him in heaven, then this should be something that brings me 
ultimate joy, even as I experience difficulty, even as I go through struggle, but I have joy because I understand God is working in these things. God is helping me with my salvation. God is preparing for me a better place in eternity through this and this and this. So I find these things to be helpful, even if they are painful, right? And so if I have that mentality, then that is going to rub off on others when I speak to them about my problems, when I speak to them about my faith. Again, it's not just information. Yeah, I'm going to give you an information dump as to what I think is right and wrong. It's, it's, a, it's a way I live my life, right? And, and, and that's reflected here. So Moses simply, in explaining to Jethro, his father-in-law, about everything that happened to him, uh, made Jethro to rejoice and to praise God and to believe in him. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to the judge of the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So, <coughs> you know, there's no government here. But there's a lot of people, and so people have natural uh, disputes with one another and problems that arise between each other, and they need someone to arbitrate and mediate between them about these things that are happening. Okay. What I like about this is that it's, it's giving you a real perspective on real life. You know, sometimes we, 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 you know, when the Bible describes a story, and says, okay, you know, this group of people, they were here, and they moved over here, and then this happened, that happened. These are like the very high-level details of what's happening. But it's not zooming in on what daily life actually looks like for this million people that are wandering around in the desert, right? And what, 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 what is a daily, what does life really look like, and the challenges and the struggles, right, of that life? And here we see that these people, right, were having issues between them. Right. Just like just like regular people. OK. And so who would they go to to kind of be a judge and, and resolve these disputes between each other? They would go to Moses because Moses is the, the man of God. He is the one who talks to God. He is the one who is the leader of the people. So he has he is the number one and obvious choice to go to whenever there is some kind of dispute. And so Moses would find himself. Uh, spending his entire day doing this from morning until evening he would spend his entire day because there are so many people and he's only one man but you also get a sense of how much he cares about these people that he is willing to spend his entire day doing nothing but this okay judging between the people so when moses father-in-law saw all that he did for the people he said what is this thing that you are doing for the people why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So one thing here is what is the, what is the basis of judgment? Right, The basis that Moses is using to judge between the people is the law of God. And this is very important because Moses was not the lawgiver. You know, Moses was it, Moses did not create a system of law. He delivers a system of law that is God made 
that is the one that God is going to reveal and later on when we speak about the ten, ten Commandments um, and all the laws that God is going to give. But Moses is simply the one who, as a judge, takes the law, just like in our justice system, right? The judge is supposed to take the law as it is written and apply it, right? This is what Moses is doing. He's taking the law of God and he is applying it to the people. And because the law itself is perfect and consistent because it was given by God, Moses is able to do this job, okay? Moses is able to do it because the law is perfect and he is not the one making the law. He is not arbitrarily saying, you know, I prefer this person over that person or, you know, making it up as he goes. No, he is applying it. He's, he's coming what to inquire. They are coming to inquire of God and, and Moses is the one to declare to the people God's judgment in their specific situation. And this is what the role of the church is now. You know, the role of the church, even uh, when the Bible speaks about when two people have a dispute with one another, they first should speak, you know, to each other about it first. And if that doesn't work, they take it to the church and the church judges, right? The church judges according to what? The church judges according to the law of God, according to the principles of God, right? Not according to the principles of the world, not according to their own individual opinions. But what is it that God has said? Okay. Um, so... This was the foundation of like a government uh, of the people, right? For, for this people. This was the foundation of the government, was the law of God and God being the king, um, which later on, you know, we know that the people are going to reject God as being the king and ask for a separate king like all the nations. Um, but here they are coming directly to God and asking him to arbitrate through Moses. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are, who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Now this is interesting here, and there's several lessons we can learn from this. Okay. Um, the first lesson that Jethro is teaching Moses is you cannot do it alone. Even a, a great man like Moses is not able to perform this work alone. Now, keep in mind also that at this point, there has been no breakdown. There has no been no burnout. M Moses has not complained about this. Like, there hasn't been any disaster happen or that Moses, you know, you know, has a panic attack or collapses or anything bad, anything happened. At this point, it is just based on Jethro's as being like an older man and a wise man, him looking at the situation and saying, you cannot keep this up. You cannot continue this, even if it seems like it's working today and that it's, you know, um, th that this is effective today. You cannot um, keep this up indefinitely because you are going to wear yourself out and it's too much for you. Right. It's too much for you. You cannot do it by yourself. Right. You have to involve other people in order to succeed. And this is certainly true of the church. Unfortunately, what happens a lot in the service of the church is you have, let's say, one or two or a few people that are like very committed to something and they do it for the right reason and they do it because they love God and they love the church and they want to do it. And then everybody looks at them and say, oh, those people are doing it. That's good. You know, we, we are relying on those people to do this. OK, well, that's OK. That's good that they are trusted. Right. But the way for the service to be practical and to continue is so that this service is not just on like a burden on a small group of people, but shared by the entire group, 
because the whole group is benefiting from various services. The other thing is each one has different talents. You know, you, each one has different talents. We we um, we sent an email out um, about service opportunities in the church, trying to get more information about what are the interests and talents of different people. Why? Because we want more people in the church to be uh, involved and engaged and, and offering their unique talents and gifts that they have received from God to the other members of the congregation, right? When I come to church, it's not just for me to receive something from others, right? But it's for me to also give of myself to others. So here, Jethro is teaching Moses this first lesson, which is that he cannot do this alone, even if he is the most qualified, you know? Because that's the other problem is we, we give something to the person who's most qualified and thinking, well, this person is most qualified. Maybe so. And if the, if, the, if the scope of it is very small, maybe this person can do it. But as the scope begins to increase, this person cannot do it. This is one thing that, um, you know, putting on my engineering hat. Like I was an engineering manager before I, uh, before I became a priest, okay? And one of the problems that would happen is there people don't understand the difference between someone who is doing a job, like a technical person, like an engineer, versus someone who is a manager, right? Those are two different jobs. The job of an engineer is to do the work. The job of the manager is to manage the people doing the work. And those skill sets are completely different, right? And oftentimes what, what would happen is they would take the person who is the best engineer, the one who is the most committed, the, the most intelligent, the hardest working engineer, and they would promote him to be the manager. But what happens is, is you get rid of your best engineer who is no longer doing engineering work, and you're putting him to do managerial work whom he knows nothing about. And maybe his skill set has nothing to do with managing people. Managing people is all about communication and, and following up with people and, and, and knowing how to communicate with people in a way that's not offensive and motivating them and resolving disputes between them and all that. That has nothing to do with engineering, right? And, and so, so being able to understand that, even though like I can do all the work myself, but in order for the work to be successful and to grow, I have to learn how to manage others. I have to learn how to lead others, which is not the same thing as doing work. Like sometimes we have the problem where, like let's say in a Sunday school class, where you have like the coordinator of the class is you know very, very good and is serious and wants the service to go well. And so they have other servants with them and the servants are all supposed to do different things. And then one of the servants, they, for whatever reason, they don't do what they're supposed to do, right? A person who is very, like, talented and committed, the first thing they're going to think of is, oh, I got to jump in there and I got to do it because in the end, I got to get the job done. And getting the job done is the most important thing. But for a manager, it's more than just getting the job done because you, as a coordinator, as a manager of other people, you have to bring, you have to motivate those people to be involved in the service, because just like here, if you try to do it all yourself, you're going to wear yourself out. So in any job that has a kind of a hierarchy, has a structure, has to operate, and we see here that God is going to institute through this wisdom of Jethro a structure of the people of Israel for everyone to participate in this and so for everyone to be responsible for their slice, right? So it cannot just be Moses alone who's responsible for everybody and doing the job of everybody. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, 
so that you may bring the difficulties to God. This is the second lesson, is that the difficulties are on God. The difficulties are not on me. When the Lord said that we should bring our burdens to him, right, and lay it at his feet and to take up his burden and his yoke because um, it, is a, it is a light burden as compared to our heavy burdens that we come and bring on him. Bringing the difficulties to God means that I am not the one responsible for the solution for the problem. I am not, res I'm not responsible for the outcome of the problem. This also happens often in service um, where I feel like I am the one responsible for the outcome, right? If, if I do my best effort and people are not coming or people are not engaged or people are, you know, not, you know, like, like things are going wrong, I am not responsible for the outcome. I'm responsible for doing my best, right? I'm responsible for doing what is in my power to do. And so here, right, Jethro is saying, bring the difficulties to God, you are not the solver of these problems. Sometimes people come with problems that are just like beyond solving, beyond like who am I to begin to try to solve this problem that this person has. Oftentimes the problem are beyond human control, right? Beyond like they require God's intervention in order for there to be a solution, you know, and, and that all we can do is pray. So, so understand that we are not the ones trying to solve the problem, but God is the one who solves. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. So the lesson number three is part of the role of Moses is not just to do the work, but it is to teach the people how to do the work so that they know how to behave and they know how to be committed and they know how to judge, right? You shall, you shall teach these people that you are selecting to do this work with you. You shall teach them the principles by which they do the work, right? So you just choose some people and be like, good luck. You know, I'm dumping this work on you. No, you are enabling them to do the work because you are teaching them, you are training them so that they are able to also know that we are using the, the, the law of God, the commandments of God to apply um, in this work that we are doing to judge the people. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place them over to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So the fourth lesson that we learn is that the character of the people that we choose is very important. It's not just important that they are talented in whatever area that we are choosing them for, but that they are spiritual, right? Here are the characteristics. They fear God. Like they care about God and what God wants. They care about pleasing God, not pleasing themselves, not fighting, not proud. They, they, they want to serve and they want to serve God. They are servants of God. Men of truth, they care about the truth, right? They, they don't want to deceive anyone. They care about what is right and what is wrong. Hating covetousness, right? They're, they are not seeking anything for themselves in this, right? You, when you promote someone to have a position of power, like politicians, we see immediately in the life of politicians, they begin to take actions for their own best interest, right? Maybe not for the interest of their constituents. Maybe not for the best interest of the people because the power is like, now what can I get from this power that I have? Here he's saying, you don't want to pick someone who wants things for themselves, right? You're going to promote someone into a position of authority. They are a servant. They are at your feet. They are there to give you what you need, not to take from you what they want. And then the fifth lesson is the system that he set up is a hierarchical system, 
He said, what Moses is going to be at the top, and then he's going to have under him rulers of thousands. Each one of those people under him is going to have a thousand people under them. And each one of those people is going to have rulers under them that rule hundreds. And each one of them is going to have rulers of fifties and then rulers of tens. And so what you can do, according to this system, is you can select people with varying degrees of talent and place them in different places. Like if I'm really, really talented, if I really am like, you know, have the ability that God gave me the ability, maybe I can be a ruler of a thousand people because I know how to manage other people well and I know how to manage like a large project or a large group. And then, it, but if you go all the way down to the bottom, maybe I can just be a ruler of tens. Maybe my ability allows me to be a ruler of tens, not a ruler of a thousands, but I can still serve and participate. And in this way, there isn't one person who has to directly manage, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. Instead, you break it down so that everybody has a sphere of influence. And as long as these people are all communicating with each other and there's this chain of command, then you can get something done. You can't get something done whenever people in this system decide that they do not want to implement the system that has been said of them. It's like the body, right? Like the brain communicates to the body. The brain does not actually do any of the work other than send electrical signals, right? Telling different organs to do their work. The, the brain cannot, you know, uh, circulate the blood without the heart. The heart is the one that knows how to do that. But the brain tells the heart, do it, you know? Like every part of the body has, has some specialization. The, the, the top, the head, the brain can't do those things. But if they don't work together, then they cannot survive. So in any good organization, there has to be communication, and everybody does their part. Everybody does their part. When St. Paul was speaking about to the Corinthians, um, because the Corinthians were all jealous of one another, because everybody wanted like the, 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 the better gifts and the better roles and the better positions, right? And he gave them this analogy of the body, and he said, everybody has a function, right? You know, where would, where would the body be if everybody wanted to be an eye or if everybody wanted to be any one particular thing? It can't function. Everyone has to be content and satisfied with what they have been given and that their part is essential and crucial and they all have to work together. So this is the fifth lesson, is using a hierarchical uh, system. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they, they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. So this is the, the sixth lesson, is differentiate between the small matters and the great matters, right? The, the great matters, the more difficult matters, goes toward those people who are more talented, who are more advanced, who are more, you know, have more skill. And in this case, he's saying go to Moses, right? The great matters, the more difficult matters, they are going to go to you. But the matters that are more routine, that, you know, they're simpler, we don't need to, 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 to bother Moses or to consume Moses' time with them. Instead, you can take them to these ones who are lower down on this chain, okay? If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So lesson number seven, if you do this or if you don't do this, you will burn yourself out, okay? Because he says you will be able to endure. If you do these things, you will be able to endure. If you divide up the work, you'll be able to endure. If you don't divide up the work, you will wear yourself out. You will not be able to endure. And the eighth lesson 
is what this is actually going to produce a better outcome and a better result for the people. It says, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. Meaning what? Right now, Moses, you know, you're sitting there and from for 10 hours a day, you're waiting to, 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 to hear everybody's complaints and you got a line of a thousand people waiting to talk to you. You think anyone's going to come and talk? They're, they're frustrated. They're tired. This is system isn't working, right? But if you have all these other people that you are sharing responsibility with, then if I have an issue, I don't necessarily have to go to Moses. I can talk to this guy over here, right? So it's going to make the whole community function better than if there was just one single person that we are all going to go to for any problem that we have. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Okay, We see in Moses, even though he was the arch-prophet, even though he was speaking directly to God, right? Speaking directly to God, even though God is the one who appeared to him in the burning bush, even though God is the one who used him to part the Red Sea, this man who w you could say that he was the holiest man on earth at this time, when this non-Hebrew man, Jethro, came to him, and, and going back to what we were talking about before, God communicated this truth through Jethro, who, 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 who believed in many gods, who was not a Hebrew person, who, you know, God had never spoken to, and yet this truth came from his mouth, right? And so we see the humility of Moses. It says actually about Moses in Numbers 12. It says, now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth, Right? which tells you something about wha why God chose Moses. You know, you could have people who God is going to approach to do the job that Moses is doing, and it'll completely get to their head, and they'll start using their position of authority for themselves, right, and to see what is it they can get from themselves. Here, Moses, as a humble man, heard the voice of God coming from Jethro. He heard the voice of God. He heard that this was actually God speaking to him, even though... God spoke to Moses directly all the time, right? Like maybe we don't have that experience, like at least I don't, is we wake up in the morning and, and we hear God speaking to us, telling us what to do that day, right? Moses did. Moses could have just said, you know, Jethro, just stay over here. Um, I, don't, I don't need to hear from you right now. Just I got important business I have to do here with God and I'm about to go up on the mountain and receive the Ten Commandments. And like he could have come up with any reason to, to minimize what Jethro was saying to him. And especially because it was his father-in-law, you know, like sometimes, you know, people and their parents-in-law, they don't necessarily want to listen to what they have to say. So, again, Moses was the most humble man, you know, on the face of the earth. And he heard that this was good from Jethro. This was the voice of God, and he accepted it through him. So we also should hear the voice of God in what other people say, especially when we don't like what they say. Because that's when it matters. If we like what people say, okay, I mean, that's nice. I mean, I feel good that I like what people are saying about me. But when we don't like what people say, then we have to pay attention. 
is there truth in this? Is God trying to tell me something in this? Is God trying to get my attention somehow with this statement? Right? We are too quick to just get angry and reject and say, you know, you don't know what you're talking about and, you know, leave me alone kind of thing and just minimize. Right? Are, is God really trying to speak to me? I should try to hear the voice of God in criticism. Okay? Because like I said, maybe we don't hear audibly God talking to us from the heavens. Right? But God does speak. He speaks through other people. Right? Pay attention and maybe we will hear the voice of God speaking to us. Okay? The other important thing I think that is illustrated here is our society because it's so like technology centric and things change so fast and one app that's popular today is outdated next year and apps and things are popping up all the time when you talk to an older person right and you get a sense of they're just kind of not they don't know about all these things they don't know about all these apps and things that young people necessarily do and and culturally how culture is moving and changing so fast and unfortunately what that does is it makes young people think that the old people are irrelevant and they have nothing to offer you know it's like i don't want to listen to you because you know you don't even know what tiktok is you don't i mean how do you how do you how can you live if you don't know what this is you know how can you you are you are like halosian your your life is is done i mean you're you're living in the ancient world now right i don't young people need to be need to realize and understand that the older people even though they don't know about the latest technologies and all that but they understand life and and even though technology changes life does not change human beings do not change human psychology does not change the the the, the wisdom that they have to offer is timeless wisdom. I mean, look, we read the Bible, which was written thousands of years ago, and all the lessons written in it by these, you know, it's still true because human beings don't change. So we should not fool ourselves into thinking that the people from older generations have nothing to offer. Actually, they have so much to offer if we're only willing to listen. If we just allow ourselves to listen and look past kind of, the the cultural differences between us and them and realize that they do have wisdom and and god uses our parents and he uses other people um to speak to us even when maybe it's not obvious that that is happening so moses is also a good example of that that he is he's he, he is deferring to his elder he's de he's deferring to someone with more experience than him and listening like intently and with a, with a willingness to apply what is it that he has heard okay we can start chapter 19 in the third month after the children of israel had gone out of the land of egypt on the same day they came to the wilderness of sinai for they had departed from rephidim and had come to the wilderness of sinai and camped in the wilderness, so Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So, like, Moses is speaking to God. Um, the Lord, it says, called him to, called him, called to him from the mountain so god is speaking from the mountain and he is calling to moses and he is saying to moses 
like that I want you to deliver this message to the house of Jacob, which is to the, all the people there, the, all the people, um, and tell the children of Israel, right, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, right, to bring to their mind that this God who is speaking to them now is the God who delivered them from the Egyptians and how he bore them on eagles' wings, meaning like like he, he, he made them to flee from Egypt as though they were flying on an eagle on eagles' wings. Like the Holy Spirit, like the, the, the eagles' um, wings represent some like lofty escape, like, like the escape by the Holy Spirit from there, not through natural means, not through, you know, like, like they were just plucked up from there and taken out. It was the Spirit of God who was working to free them um, and not any human power. So God is reminding them of this. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So God is selecting these people out of all the peoples on the earth to be his own. Okay? He's saying, if, but if under this condition, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. Okay, um, This was the condition. This was the condition to be this special treasure, the special people of God. And we had spoken earlier about um, the idea of God choosing these people. God did not choose these people in exclusion to everyone else it's not like god only loved these people or god only cared about the salvation of these people god chose these people from whom the messiah would come and that messiah would be for the salvation of everyone the salvation of the whole world right but at this point in history he chose these people to prepare them for the coming of the messiah to them he delivered the prophets. To them he delivered all the prophecies. To them he delivered all the teachings. So that they and the whole world through them would know what is coming. Okay? So that when the Messiah would come, they would recognize him and say, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior of the world. And then at that point is when salvation and what they were all preparing for from the beginning was the salvation, the Messiah coming. He would be for the whole world and not only for um, the Jews. But the condition for them to be this special people to him is that they would obey his voice and keep his covenant. And this is the thing that the Israelites completely forgot. The Israelites, after this point, began to believe that simply because they are Israelites, that simply because they are the Hebrew people, that simply because of their DNA, that they are the accepted people of God and that no matter what they do, God is accepting them. This is why later on, when they sinned against God, when they rejected God, when they worshipped idols, when God sent them prophets to warn them, and they still didn't believe that in the end God scattered them along the face of the earth in exile, right? Even in the New Testament, right, when St. John the Baptist um, uh, is speaking to the Pharisees, right, and uh, the Pharisees were boasting of their status as being the people of God, so St. John the Baptist is saying to them in Luke chapter 3, he's saying, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Right? Like, don't, don't say because Abraham is our ancestor, because we have come from the loins of Abraham, then that means that we are the chosen and selected people of God and there is nothing that can happen to us. No. He says what? For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Like, like you think it's such a special and, and, and 
you know, exclusive uh, status to be the children of Abraham. No, I can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Like, don't don't be so secure saying um, uh, we are the we have Abraham as our father. We have the children of Abraham. We are God's special people. Why? Because God said from the beginning when he made this covenant with you and he said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure. And this says something about the promises of God, the covenant of God. The covenant of God is a real is a, is a promise and a relationship between God and us. And it always is a two way pact. God offers something. And we, in return, offer him something. Okay? What God offers is far, far greater than what we give him. But the promise is contingent. Okay? You want to be the special treasure to me above all people? You have to obey my voice and keep my covenant. Okay? So God made it very clear, okay, that this is what was expected to them. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So this idea of being a kingdom of priests, as, as they are a consecrated people that offer sacrifice to God and communicate with him. They are the people of God that communicate with God, right? In that sense, they are the priests. They also are the priests because they are the ones who offer sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of sins. It is only in this nation, in the Hebrew nation, that this is happening, okay? Okay. Um, this is saying that they are a kingdom of priests is like a metaphorical priesthood. This does not detract from the Levitical priesthood, which is to come, where he specifically chooses the tribe of Levi to be the, the, the priests, um, namely the sons of Aaron, to be the priests that are actually going to officiate the sacrifices in the, t in the tabernacle and temple and so on. But they're saying that they are a kingdom of priests, meaning they are the nation from which the priests are. They are the nations to, that will pray to God. They are the nations to offer sacrifice to God. Um, just to, to backtrack on the previous verse about that God has a, a role and we have a role, that God makes his covenant with us, the same is true with us now, like when, when, when God is offering us salvation. You know, God... He, he was crucified on the cross. He, he granted us the forgiveness of our sins and salvation to anyone. But this gift also is contingent on us accepting it. You know, when, when the Lord speaks about what is our role in salvation, he says, what? okay, well, in order for us to be saved, we have to have faith. We have to uh, partake of the sacraments. You know, like, like there, are, there are things that we have to respond with it is not just the case that because the Lord was crucified on the cross, then suddenly, automatically, every single person on the earth has salvation. No, there is something that I have to do to receive this gift um, of salvation that God is offering. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Okay, so he's doing what God said. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Okay. The people's response to Moses was positive. Right? Up, uh, you know, he says, Everything that the Lord has said we will do. But if you look at how things have played out until this time, at almost every stage and every step up until this time, the people have not done what 
God is asking them to do. Okay? Like, oftentimes we receive the word of God joyfully. It's like in the parable of the sower. We receive the word of God joyfully, and we're like, yes, you know, I want to do that. But then when we get into the real life situation, right, we find ourselves not doing it at all, or sometimes not even trying to do it. And to me, when I read this, it kind of makes me feel like these people don't have good self-understanding. They don't understand themselves. They don't understand what human weakness is, right? You know, sometimes we make promises, sometimes we make commitments, sometimes we assume, yes, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, but without fully processing how hard it is to do those things. You know, these people that are saying we will do what the Lord is asking, well, the Lord already did so many things, and all along the way you've been complaining and grumbling and, you know, not accepting, right? So sometimes we, we don't really know ourselves or understand our weaknesses or understand how our weaknesses are kind of a stumbling block for us in our life. We don't understand how certain weaknesses that we have are like a constant uh, struggle that we are like stumbling and not able to achieve, not able to grow, not able to do what it is we want to do because we have some weakness inside that is keeping us from doing so. And because we don't have self-understanding, we assume about ourselves that we are good. This is why in the church, um, we, we, s- we speak so much about Lord have mercy. Like we say this like more than anything. Lord have mercy. If I truly understand myself, then when I say Lord have mercy, it will truly be coming from my heart because I recognize that I am a sinner. If I truly know that I am a sinner, then Lord have mercy, it's coming really from a place of understanding myself. But sometimes we say Lord have mercy, but really in our mind is, uh, you know, I'm a pretty good person and I do good things and you know I you know we 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 tend to look a lot at the good things that maybe we do well and kind of sidestep or overlook the things that we really are severely lacking in. Um but the beginning of the spiritual growth is humility, is identifying our weaknesses, is confessing our sins. If these people understood themselves and they would truly come to God with a spirit of contrition, which which you haven't seen You know, each of these instances that we've seen them complaining against God, we haven't seen apologies. We haven't seen repentance. We haven't seen like a a, a kind of a self-understanding and a spirit of contrition or asking the mercy of God. We see only, okay, there's a situation that happens and God gets upset with them and something happens and they move on to the next thing. We don't really see from them that they are sorrowful for their disobedience, okay? And this is why... Like confession is so important. For us to confess our sins, we have to know our sins and we have to know ourselves. And not just whenever we're asked to do something, we just kind of say, oh, yeah, I'll do everything. I'll do it all. I'll, I, I, I. When we read the word of God, there should be a struggle. We should be like, you know what? I know this is right, but I'm a sinner and I struggle to do this and I want to do it. But I know myself that this is hard to do. And I, wa- I, I want to go in that struggle, but not to assume that whatever the Lord asks us to do are so simple. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So what did the people say? Um, 
No, sorry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai and the sight of all the people. So there was this period of like preparation and consecration where he told them um, <coughs> here, uh, consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. So it's like in preparation for meeting the Lord on the mountain and hearing his voice, they had to be prepared. And it took three days for them to be prepared. They had to wash their clothes. They had to be clean, right? Representing they had to be pure and consecrated before God. Um, and it's like they had to leave the world behind. Like they had to be elevated in their thoughts, in their mind, ready to receive from God what it is that he had um, ready for them, prepared for them. And this is why, like, this is an attitude that we should have, like, when we go to church. Like, I know that when we attend church for many, many years, it's a familiar place, and we feel like we are coming to church and we're going to a place that we know and we know what to expect and we are seeing people there that we know and so on. Um, but when we come to church, we should go there with this sense of preparation and a sense of that we are coming to hear from God uh, something special, like something awesome that we are hearing from him. Um, Origen, the scholar, he was speaking about this passage here, and he says the following. He says, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? Speaking about the parable of the wedding garment. Thus, no man can listen to God's words unless he is holy, both in body and in spirit. So he's saying in the parable of the wedding garment, um, this man who um, had gone into this uh, wedding banquet, so the parable of the wedding banquet, he went into the wedding banquet, but he didn't have the wedding garment with him, and so he was kicked out, okay? So Origen here is making this commentary. He's saying, no man can listen to God's words unless he is holy both in body and in spirit, unless he washes his clothes in order to enter into the banquet of the groom, eat the flesh of the lamb, and drink the chalice of salvation. Nobody can attend that banquet with dirty clothes. The wisdom confirmed that saying on another occasion, let your clothes always be white. Your garments were washed once. You gained the grace of baptism. Your body was purified and you got rid of all defilement of the flesh and spirit. Therefore, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. So here, this idea of preparation and putting on these clean clothes in preparation for hearing the word of God. Okay, I think this is a good stopping point. Does anyone have any comments before we conclude? Yes. Uh, Bruno, my question, well, it was, I'd had the question a, a while back, but uh, I'll just take it back. You were, um, you were talking about how Moses was judging the people of Israel and, and afterwards uh, they institute this system where multiple people have that role and only uh, some uh, only the more difficult questions uh, of the law come to Moses, right? You, you'd been speaking about that. And so my first question had been that how, actually, it, it's something you mentioned, how, how is the law derived exactly? Is it, is, it a, is it like how we act logically, where if we, we're given a set of principles, and so we say, uh, if this is true, then this must be true. Uh, and if th this is true, then perhaps this is not true. And we derive, you know, the further laws. Is that how they were able to make their judgments as we do today? Um, so even, e even though God is logical, but it doesn't mean that 
his law can be derived simply from logic. So what is it that we know about God is we know about him through revelation, right? Like how is it that we even know God exists? It's through revelation. Mm. And how do we know what he wants from us is through revelation. So the only way that they were to know the law of God is because God revealed it to them. And actually, that's what we're going to see, right? Like when they receive the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and not just the Ten Commandments, many, many, many other laws that God is about to reveal here, right? So the reason God is revealing those laws is because they're not necessarily self-evident. Now, if we as human beings, at least when it comes, let's say, to the moral law, if we were uncorrupted, because we are made in the image of God, and we have a lot of the characteristics of God, and we have a sense of right and wrong, that is given to us simply by being made in the image of God, if we had a completely uncorrupted nature, is it possible that, I, I, won't say, I won't say that intrinsically everything that we do would be according to the commandment of God, but maybe more so. Um, I mean, Adam and Eve, they sinned while they were also made in the image of God, and while they even knew right from wrong, because God told them, Right? They wouldn't have known not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had God not told them. Right? Like, how would they have known that? It was only because God told them specific instructions that they should not eat of this tree that they knew it to be true. Right? So you can't just implicitly know God's law only from logic alone. I, I definitely agree with that because. Obviously, most of the world tries to do that, nonetheless, uh, to to derive truth by logic, by themselves. Um, but in in saying that, when when God does reveal His truth to us, that is nonetheless logical. It's just that we can derive that on our own. Yes. Say it again. You, we can or cannot. That when God gives us the truth. Yes, the right? truth is logical, but okay. it wouldn't be something that we could have surmised by ourselves okay okay yes but it but god is logical so everything that he produces is inherently logical and ordered right but it doesn't mean that we would be able to just predict him okay, okay so uh, that was basically my first question mm. and uh, there's just one other and it's simpler i guess w uh, this people of god um we see them uh, through the through those centuries up until the, the time of Christ, and by that point, you know the leaders, these leaders that were instituted, I guess, uh, they're described uh, as the Pharisees, the the scribes, the Sadducees, if if that is so. Those are the leaders, but they're corrupt. They seem not to know the law. And Christ denounces them accordingly. He says that you do not know the law. You don't know the heart of the law. So what happened over those centuries? What exactly? Uh, what exactly did they lose? Because they had, they were still instituting these, uh, you know, sayings like, "Oh, you can't do this, you can't do that," and they were doing that then. So, what happened between then, between the time of Moses and and the time of Christ? Well, they never really ever understood the heart of the law from the beginning, because their focus was always on what should be done and what should not be done, right, and to the point where they would, you know, even come up with ways that, you know, you could technically fulfill the law, but still doing what you want, like trying to find loopholes and things, right? The, 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 the whole Old Testament 
Because they did not have the Spirit of God, the people could not understand the spiritual reasons behind why God commanded them to do what they did, right? It was inherently a time where the only thing you could ask of people to do is follow commandments, but without understanding. It is only in the New Testament, when we receive the Spirit of God, do we have a spiritual understanding of all the things that had come before. This is why we say that the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament, and the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament. Like, it is only through the lens of Christ and the Holy Spirit and salvation that we see the law in a spiritual way now. This is why even up until today, people who are Jewish, you know, are very legalistic. You know, like in some places, you know, they have the elevator that it opens on every single floor automatically so that on the Sabbath day, they don't have to press the elevator button. Like in some places in New York and things, this is what they do, right? And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to criticize that. I'm just saying this is the legalistic, we cannot do work on the Sabbath approach to where I can't even press a button, right? So, so that was the view taken of the law all throughout is legalism, legalism, legalism. And that's why in the New Testament, like St. Paul said, we should not understand the law according to the letter because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And actually the purpose of even God giving the law in the Old Testament was not because the law brought life, it was because the law confirmed how dead in sin they were. The whole reason for the law was so that the people would realize that they could not fulfill the law, that they fell short of obedience. And that is why they needed salvation. So if the people, knowing that they need salvation because they cannot fulfill the law, then they are looking to God for his mercy to fulfill that salvation for them, and that would come in the person of the Messiah, so that when the Messiah would come, they would understand and see that this is who they really needed all along. Not a king, you know, not a military re leader, but, but someone to forgive their, their sin, right? But the people didn't understand. Yeah. Sure. Last thing, last thing. Okay. Um, so uh, if, if no one understood the spirit of the law, was there, was there, uh, what about Moses and the other patriarchs, the people, significant figures, nobody, uh, because that means that they, nobody had the sp Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, right? Nobody now had the full picture of what God was doing. Okay. Nobody had the full picture. Okay. Everybody kind of, they received prophecies, and, and they, they, they gave those prophecies, and they, they definitely understood that God was holy, and that people should be following him, and that he is, he is, their, he is their king, their God, their creator, uh, and he is good, but they didn't. They didn't understand. They didn't. They, they weren't able to see what truly salvation was. Not none of the Old Testament patriarchs could really say, like, with confidence, that the Messiah that we are talking about and prophesying about is actually the incarnation of God Himself. You know, even though the prophecies pointed to this, but the prophecies, like, it was difficult for people to understand them. And it was only at the coming of the Lord when he is now interpreting the prophecies and he is describing how they are actually referring to himself, right? That's when it became clear to some, right, that all along he was the fulfillment of these prophecies. But, but no, there wasn't, a clear, um, there wasn't a clear understanding throughout history of what was actually what they were waiting for.
Yes. Um, there's a question on Zoom. Um, going back to how people were called to serve in different ways, how do we practice slash gain courage to follow when he calls us? So if, if God calls us to serve, then he is the enabler. He is the one who's going to enable us to be able to serve in whatever capacity that he, he is calling us to serve. And we see this like so often in the scripture. Like Jeremiah the prophet, for instance, he, he felt about himself that he was young and he was a youth and who is going to listen to him and how is it that he could be a prophet? And yet the Lord responded and he told him, you know, while you were still in the womb, I knew you. Like I am preparing you for this service that I'm calling you for. So God was never going to call us to do a kind of a service that he is not preparing us to do. Now that doesn't mean that we are going to be 100% prepared at the beginning of the service and then we say, okay, now I'm going to start because we will never feel 100% prepared. And a big part of the service is feeling that we are in need, relying on God daily in everything that we do. You think that the apostles, you know, when they went out on their mission, like to, to go and evangelize, like the 72 apostles were sent out by Christ to go evangelize, you felt like they were prepared, like in the sense that they felt like, yep, yeah, I know everything that I need to know, and I know exactly what to expect, and I'm going to respond correctly in every situation. They didn't know. But the Lord actually told them, don't be overprepared. He said, like, don't bring with you extra supplies. Don't bring with you extra money. Don't bring with you all this extra stuff. Why? Because I don't want you to rely on those things. I want you to rely on me, on the Spirit of God who's going to be with you in this ministry. So sometimes we become overly obsessed with preparation without remembering that God is actually working in the service and that we are just like his, his tools that he is using, but it, it, is not, it is not like that we are doing it um, alone. Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you, O God, because you revealed to us in the life of Moses and the life of your people from the very beginning how much you did for them to form them, to protect them, to give them a vision and a purpose and a goal and a plan, and how much, O oh Lord, that you called them to be a special treasure and a chosen people to you. But you ask them also, O oh Lord, to be obedient to you and to follow you and to trust in you. We ask, O oh God, that you continue to allow us to be your people, to have mercy on us, to forgive us our sins, and to remind us also of our, our obligation to you, to seek you out, O oh Lord, and to confess and, and repent of our sins as we fall. Give us strength and hope, O oh Lord, for the future, and give us, O oh Lord, steadfastness in the midst of this wicked and dark world that we live and prepare us O lord for the coming age and help us O lord always to be joyful in our life knowing O lord that you have granted us victory in all things through the prayers of saint mary archangel michael saint paul saint mark and all your saints hear us as we pray thankfully our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from the evil one in christ jesus our lord for thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever amen the love of god the father the grace of the only begotten son our lord god and savior jesus christ and the communion and the gift of the holy spirit be with you all go in peace